Scripture for the lesson this morning is Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and the Lamb. And in their mouths was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her, forn of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So as they prepared um, for the Battle of Helm's Deep, Gandalf looked at Aragorn and his army, knowing that he would leave them, and as he prepared to leave, he said these words, look for me at the sunrise on the fifth day. And what proceeded after that, or what's, what came to follow was this, this season of darkness as they squared off against this dark army that seemed bent on destroying the world, and in the face of that destruction, destruction in the face of that threat, they battled on furiously and almost had forgotten that promise. But then there came that moment where they would ride out knowing that they were taking their last ride, knowing there was no hope, knowing there was no future except for that one promise, look for me at the sunrise on the fifth day. And sure enough, as the sun rose, they saw their hero who would then be their savior bringing this, these reinforcements that would then sweep the enemy away and change that tide of battle. In the darkest place, they saw the sunrise, and there was hope. I think that's a little bit of where we're at in Revelation chapter 14. If you've been following Revelation 12 and 13, you've been going through some pretty hard things. 
In Revelation 12, we were introduced to, really we're introduced to the great battle of Revelation, and we're really getting introduced to the enemies. What are we fighting here? What is this war that's going to be unfolding? And we first get introduced to this dragon, this fearsome, awesome-looking figure that is bent on destruction. And it's bent first on destroying the child, destroying Jesus, and when that fails, he turns his sight on the woman in Revelation 12, which is a picture of the church. He turns his sight to destroy the church, and that's been his aim. And you see the dragon who fails in his efforts, but then he calls forth his minions. And so he calls forth first the sea beast and the land beast, these, this kind of unholy trinity. And what they are doing is seeking to destroy first by gathering the enemies and, and calling them to worship the, the sea beast, ultimately, worship, and ultimately worshiping the dragon. He's calling forth this army that's built from every tribe and tongue, all built and pushed against the church. And they're surrounded by darkness. They're surrounded by false worship. They're surrounded by tempters and deceivers who are seducing all those to follow them. And if you get to the end of Revelation 13, it seems like this army that's built on destruction just seems like it cannot be defeated. There's this overwhelming sense at the end of Revelation 13 of a world bent on false worship, bent against God and God's people. And in that moment, there's just, just a hunger if you're reading it, especially if you're reading it for the first time. You see, where is the hope? Where do you look for hope when you're surrounded by darkness? And then Revelation 14 opens up. And we see the sun begin to rise. Verse, 14, verse 1 of chapter 14, he, he, John looks, and what does he see? But he looks and sees on Mount Zion, this picture of this, the promise of Jerusalem, this promise of God's people. He looks on the Mount Zion, and there is the Lamb. But it's not just the Lamb, but he's surrounded now by 144,000 who have his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. There are 144,000 marked by God. Now, if you were following last week, the other, the false worshipers have also been marked. They're wearing this mark on, the, on their foreheads and on their, their arms, on their hands. They're, they're marked in this kind of false worship as they give this, this allegiance to the dragon and his minions. But here, you see this holy army rising up, these 144,000 who are set aside, who are marked by God as His people. Now, when you see that number, well, what are we talking about here? Well, we've seen this number before, 144,000. We saw it back in, in chapter 7. The chapter 7, it was this, this holy remnant of Israel. There were 12,000 from 12 different tribes, the 144,000 as this holy army of Israel leading the way. And when we talked back in chapter 7, there's a debate about is that kind of Israel figurative or is Israel literal? I suggested you probably just take it literally, that this is a picture of 144,000 of a faithful remnant of Jews that are following Christ. And in a sense, this kind of early church, these, some of these first believers are serving in chapter 7 as the, the kind of the first fruits, the remnant, 
that say we are going to lead the way and lead the charge, which is, of course, what happened in, in Christian history, that the first believers were Jews, that they are leading the charge. They're seeing in Jesus the promised Messiah, the one who's delivering on their entire history, telling them this is what we've been, uh, been leading towards all our lives, and now he is here. And here in chapter 14, again, this 144,000 is leading the way. But it's not simply that they're marked uh, because they're faithful, but they've also been marked because they've, they've suffered. These are, essentially, these are the martyrs that are leading the way. This, but, 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 but what is this? And it's, it's clear here that these, these are the first forming a kind of holy army. Now, when you read the first five verses of chapter 14, if you don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to do so. There's a lot, again, these a dense chapter. But this, there's, there's two different images. I've, I've already said it several times that this is an army. And there's another picture you could draw here, that this is a picture of priests. Uh, and I think probably what we should do to appreciate in, in terms of Old Testament imagery is that when you're talking about priests and you're talking about an army, you're kind of saying the same thing. Because priests are soldiers. They are, in a sense, part of the army of the Lord. And there's a lot of the, the priests, uh, the, even the, the things that they wear. They have breastplates that they wear, which in a sense are, are marking them as soldiers, as, as leading the people into battle. And when you have this opened up here, you see these soldier priests armed for battle, ready for battle. And what are they doing? They are giving an answer to the darkness. And what is their answer? Is their answer... Man, that's a really terrible enemy. What are we going to do? Um, it's re, he's really powerful. Everyone's kind of joining on his side. How can we overcome? No. Verse 2, they heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. This is a song that they're singing, and it is a war cry. It's in this moment these 144,000 open their mouths and sing this song, and it is a song of victory. There's nothing timid about this song. This is nothing that's weak or we're uncertain here. This is a song that's this overwhelming noise, and that's what armies do. I'm actually, when I'm reading chapter 14, what I think of, I'm thinking of bagpipes. I mean, what were bagpipes for? Bagpipes were the, were the, the, the instruments of war. That's why they, they were actually banned when the British conquered the Scottish, because you weren't allowed to have bagpipes, because when you have the bagpipes, what do you think about, if I'm going to play these things, I want to go kill somebody. And actually, a lot of people who've heard the bagpipes over the years said, when I hear that, I want to kill somebody. But that's what they were for. These are, these, are, these are instruments of war. They play these bagpipes, and you can imagine 144,000 bagpipes all blowing at the same time. Now, whatever that does for you in your head, that's something of the image of what's happening here. It's this overwhelming, piercing cry that is meant to terrorize the other side. That's what they're doing in this moment. And that's really a lot of, a lot of our, you know, traditions in military. I mean, the, the war cry is something that does that. You can think about, I think of the Scottish army, but you had the same thing in the Civil War. It was the, it was the rebel yell in the war with Native Americans. Many Native American tribes would have this, this, this piercing cry that would terrorize their enemies. There are many examples of this, of a war cry. And in that war cry, there is a sense of confidence. In a sense, this 
this 144,000 singing this new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. It is a worship song that is celebrating the victory that has already been declared. A victory that has been declared that is still yet to come. And that's a pattern that we keep seeing in Revelation over and over again. I think we need to remind ourselves of it as we move along, that you get these images of this powerful darkness, this overwhelming darkness, this work of evil that is at, at work in the world. But every now and then there's just the reminder and declaration, yeah, we've already won this thing. Victory's already been won. There's nothing they can do ultimately to change the outcome of this thing. The 144,000 are leading the charge. They're, in fact, kind of leading the church for us to tell us what is happening. They are lifting their voices in a kind of worship. And in that moment, they're priests and soldiers. They are reminding us that worship itself is a kind of war. Have you ever thought about it that way? That worship itself is war? That when we gather Sunday to Sunday and lift our voices together, there is a, that, that's battle. That we are declaring a reality. We're declaring that no matter what's gone on in our week, and no matter how much we have personally struggled, and no matter how much the world seems to be bent out of shape and going off in all the wrong ways, that we lift our voices as a holy congregation, and together we sing of a victory that has been promised to us that we are still waiting to see in its, full, in its fullest. It is a kind of war cry that we gather together, and, and in that song, we are rolling back the darkness. We are singing truth, and it's not simply that we're saying it, we're singing it, and there's something about music that just gets in our blood You know, we hear these songs over and over, and somehow we just find ourselves singing it. My girls have played a lot of Hamilton this summer. Larry will tell you, he hates Hamilton. But I swear to you, at least every other day, I'm hearing him singing Hamilton. It's gotten in his head. They've won. He just doesn't know it yet. But it's done something. Music has that power. It it, it gets into our blood. It, It crawls inside us. And as we sing, we are rolling back the darkness, proclaiming with our whole body, with all that we have, that God is in control, that Jesus Christ has won. And so this holy army is singing that song before the great darkness of their time. And so it's this new song, a song of redemption, a song of celebration, a song of victory. And it is sung by this holy army that is pure. Verse 4 has this long description of all of this picture of their purity. And again, that's a moment where you would think of both priests in Old Testament imagery and of soldiers. I think it's both are there. That it's the priest that has to purify themselves. A lot of the work of the priest in the Old Testament, in the temple system, the tabernacle system, a lot of their work is to purify themselves so that they can rightly make sacrifice on behalf of an impure people, so that the people of God can be cleansed and thus be in the presence of God. A lot of the rhythm of worship is about cleansing so that they can have a way, 
They can be before God. So this emphasis on purity makes us, biblically, makes us first think about a priestly group. And yet, the other folks that had a sense of purity were not just priests, but soldiers. In fact, you saw this example in the Old Testament when David had his sin with Bathsheba. He brings Uriah home, hoping that he could get him to be responsible for this child that she now carries, and he would sleep on the street. He would, he would not go home because he had to keep himself ritually pure. He's a good soldier. The soldiers would purify themselves, keep themselves pure as they do this war. So this is a sense of, of, a soldier, of, of, a, of soldiers here. And I think that's also the idea of why they're, they're men here in verse 4. It's talking about women. But it's, it's, these, are, these are men who are being set aside uh, for this pure battle that is to come. They've been redeemed as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Verses 4 and 5. They've been redeemed from mankind and have been set aside. The 144,000 are the first fruits. They're leading the charge, and there is a reminder there that there is more to come. They are leading the way for God's people. Now just pause there and just imagine you're one of these seven churches in Revelation. You're surrounded by all these challenges. You've, you are already experiencing some persecution, maybe. Some of the churches are. Uh, you are being promised that there's more to come, that it's going to get a whole lot worse. Um, you're not feeling very encouraged right now at the end of, of chapter 13, but then there is a reminder that there is this holy army, 144,000 strong, this giant army that is leading the way, that is celebrating the victory. You can see already how the people would be lifted up and encouraged in that moment. But then there's more. And what follows is more good news, though it may be hard for us to kind of picture how it's good news. But then you have this appearance of three angels, these messengers that come to proclaim what is to come. So the first angel, verse 6, you see another angel flying directly overhead. There's a series of another angels, a lot of discussion about who are these other angels. I think they're actually probably a picture of the Spirit of God. Uh, revealing himself in different ways to them. But this angel appears with this eternal gospel, with this good news that he proclaims. And he's proclaiming it to all the earth dwellers, all those who dwell on earth, which again makes us think both of everybody on earth, all peoples, but also the sea versus land thing. Earth dwellers is preaching to Jews. Um, but he's preaching to the people who have themselves heard all of this false worship, the promise of this dragon and beast, these two beasts. But he's proclaiming a message to every nation and tribe and language and people, all those that these beasts are, being, are trying to seduce in false worship. And he speaks with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now what in the world is happening there? I mean, we just were told it, it, just a couple of verses ago, this is good news. So the good news is, be afraid because the hour of judgment has come. How is that good news? How is the good news, the gospel, a gospel of judgment? Well, just note that they're saying the same thing that Jesus said. This is how Jesus would describe the gospel. Mark 1.15, I put it on the screen, but he says, repent, the kingdom of come has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, in a sense, kind of summarizing John's message, John the Baptist, who said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Both John the Baptist and Jesus would present the gospel, the good news, 
as a call to repent because of impending judgment. The gospel is, in part, a gospel of judgment. We don't like to think of that today. We like to think, you know, the gospel is a friendly, it's good news, it's all positive. But there is a reality of judgment. Now that makes us stretch We have to kind of start building out, you know, a larger room or larger category to think about what is the gospel. A lot of times our exclusive sense of what the gospel is, is the gospel is about our personal deliverance. It's an individual thing. It's about me confronted with my sin, repenting of that sin, confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ and putting him on in baptism. Now, all of that's part of the gospel. We celebrated that. I got to celebrate with my own daughter last week. We celebrate that the gospel is a gospel of personal deliverance. But it's more than that. It's not simply about God cherry-picking a whole bunch of individuals from around the world and calling them a church and then having them escape from this world that's being destroyed. The gospel is about the restoration of God's rule over His whole creation. You see that right here in these verses. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That is, all of these things that are being corrupted around you. This dragon is calling forth this beast from the sea and this beast from the earth. But guess who made the sea? And guess who made the earth? And there's this reassertion that God is in charge, that God is ruling over His whole creation. Part of the good news is the reality that Jesus Christ in His ascension is stepping onto the throne, that God is taking the throne back that Satan has ruled for too long. Satan may be the king of the earth for a time, but he is a deposed king because the Creator has said, now is my time, and I'm taking it back. The gospel is about the restoration of God's rightful rule that involves overthrowing that false king, which is why the gospel is a gospel of judgment, because there's a false king sitting on the throne. And if God is going to establish, reestablish his rightful ruler, the false king's got to be taken down. And that's not going to be clean. It's not going to be pretty. But it has to happen. And if that doesn't happen, there is no good news. If that doesn't happen, then the gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a restoration of God's rule over His creation. And then, the other piece right here in this first angel's words is that that forces a crisis. And our view of time actually changes here. A lot of times we kind of go through the motions in our lives. We see time as this kind of endless thing that keeps on going. But that's not a biblical view of time. Time is full of crisis moments. There are critical moments biblically. And this is one of those moments. The angel is saying, now is the time. There have been a series of them throughout Revelation. There's a series of warnings. Wake up. The time is coming. The time is coming. The time is coming. That's what John the Baptist was doing. Wake up. The time is coming. Jesus and his message. Wake up. The time is coming. And the time is now here. This is a crisis time that forces everybody to make a choice. You finally reach the point where you can't sit on the fence, where you can't kind of waffle back and forth. You've got to cast a vote. You've got to declare whose side are you on, 
There is no, and here, there is no third option. There's no third way. What, what a lot of what's happening in Revelation, over and over again, we're seeing this kind of coming moment where you just can't be part of a silent majority, where you've got to decide it's A or B, and you're going to have to make that choice. The angel is, is telling them that there is a moment that's coming. This is that moment. So all of these folks here are being called, essentially, to repent. For those who've embraced this false worship, turn, change. Whose side are you on? Because that moment is coming, and it's now here. And then the second angel comes. And what does he say? Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's a reference, it's actually the first reference in Revelation to Babylon. We're going to see Babylon talked about a number of times, and we'll have more time to kind of drill into some of the details of that. But it tells us that this great city that has been the subject of Revelation is a new Babylon, and its end is nigh. Its end is coming. This is the first mention of Babylon, and the first mention is to tell you that Babylon is falling down, which I think is interesting to think about. Babylon is, is a much feared image in, in Scripture. To think of Babylon is to think of the great city that threatens God's people, that is this overwhelming force. But the very first mention in Revelation is to tell you that Babylon is a fallen city. It's not really that much of a threat at all. The great city that we've been talking about throughout Revelation, so far it's been identified as Sodom, it's been identified as Egypt, and in chapter 11, verse 8, I think it's a really important reference, it's identified as the city where the Lord was crucified. Now, that's a key thing to understand what's really happening here, because usually most folks, when they think of Babylon in terms of apocalyptic imagery, the city that they think about is Rome. That this is a reference to Rome. This is talking about the fall of Rome. And well, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Biblically, if you kind of understand what Daniel does in Daniel 7 and Daniel 11, Babylon is certainly fulfilled in Rome as the great empire of the first century. This great presence that often would turn, its, turn against Christianity, though at times would actually be an ally. I mean, there's a complicated history. But Babylon is often seen as the great city. But in Revelation, it's more complicated because it's not just Rome. There are times that it's clearly thinking about Rome. But ultimately, chapter 11, verse 8, when the great city, and we're going to see this reference, I think, next chapter, we see explicitly that Babylon is the great city, um, that what they're talking about here is this unholy alliance of Rome and Jerusalem. That when you're seeing Babylon described here, you're really talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which is something, if Revelation is written in the mid-60s, is coming in just a few years. A.D. 70 is the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And it is a horrific, life-changing moment. I mean, it is the end of an era. Uh, it is the end of an age with the destruction of Herod's temple. And here, that Babylon is being linked with this picture of what Jerusalem has become, that, that it's an unholy alliance that Jerusalem has aligned itself with Rome against the church and is going to pay a price. More on that in the weeks to come. But there's a couple of things. When we think about Babylon, I want to put a couple different images in your head. When we first think of Babylon, biblically, 
I wouldn't think of Babylon first. I would tell you to think about Babel, the Tower of Babel. It's derivation, similar terms. So we're thinking of the same kind of city. The first reference to a Babylon in Scripture is Babel, the first city of rebellion. And the Tower of Babel, the people of God in the early chapters of Genesis build this tower to the heavens. They unite. They gather together. They're working together. They're cooperating. And what do they, what do, they do? They want to build a tower to the heavens so really they can transcend their need for God. The first picture of Babel is a city of a people who um, unite against God. And so God scatters them and scatters their, and, and confuses their language. We were talking this morning in our class about the challenge of language and building unity. We feel that struggle. But Babel is a reminder that that is a curse that we are living on, under. But we're living under it because not all unity is good. <laughs> the first time people got together and united in Scripture, it was to do evil. Not all unity is a good thing. What we unite for matters. We're entering this campaign season in full. We're going to have a lot of folks telling us we ought to unite. But it's a matter of what we're uniting for that really is vital. And here we're reminded that Babel was the first city that united against their creator. Babel is a city of rebellion, and that rebellion is coming to an end. Babylon is the city of exile. That's where the people of Israel, the people of Judah actually, who were who were exiled from Jerusalem, that the temple was destroyed the first time, they are exiled to Babylon. And it's there in Babylon that they're reminded that they have the reason why they're in exile is because they have abandoned God, because they turned their back, because they were unfaithful. And there in Babylon, it's not that God just leaves them there, but that God is faithful and is actually restoring and rebuilding his people. This is the story of Daniel, who is in exile, in Babylon. Um, that, that in Babylon, in exile, God is calling out a faithful few, a faithful remnant, so that they can return from exile. When the great city in Revelation, it tells us that great city is Egypt, we expect an exodus. And in fact, some of Revelation is about a kind of second exodus. But if it's Babylon... We're expecting really a second exodus as a return from exile because that's what happens to Babylon. You go there for a time and then you come back. Babylon is fallen. Babylon in this moment of power is nothing more than a city of exile. And there is a promise for God's faithful that a return from exile is coming. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. There's one other thing that he said here, and this is a short verse, but he talks about Babylon as a seducer made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon is a seducer leading us to love that which we should not love. The image of wine here is linked with love in Song of Songs. It's we drink the wine of love. But here, this wine is used to lead us, lead the people away from God. The lovers in Song of Songs become intoxicated by love. And here, that, that intoxication is destroying them. The wine here breeds a, an idolatrous, idolatrous, murderous, restless zeal as these people worship the beasts. That's what's been happening in chapter 13. And here there's a promised destruction of Babylon for that work. And there's a third angel. 
What does the third angel say? This other angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Those who drink from Babylon's cup that we just learned about in, in the second angel, they get a second drink that they've got to drink too. Now, the, the, the image here is maybe unfamiliar to us. When he says it's poured full strength into the cup of his anger, I don't think we quite capture what that's about. At the time, first century practice, uh, when they would drink wine, uh, it was diluted. That's the normal practice. They would dilute, you know, maybe one for one, and sometimes it was is significantly diluted, maybe three parts water to one part wine. The, the dilution of wine was the normal practice uh, for first century Jews. If they had undiluted wine, the reason why they were taking undiluted wine was to get drunk. Uh, that was their entire purpose. Uh, and so there was a sense of the undiluted cup uh, is, a, is a wine drunk with purpose, the intent to get drunk. Um, these people had gotten drunk on Babylon's wine, and so now God is giving them the undiluted cup of His anger and His wrath. They're drinking the cup that comes with it. This is a picture of destruction that is before them, those who have worshipped, those who are following them, who accept the mark, who've been marked by this, this false trinity in this false worship, they experience a, a wrath that is both final and eternal. And that's a big debate that happens in Revelation imagery. And you'll see echoes of both here, and we have more to talk about. There's more judgment coming in Revelation, so we'll have time to pour into this. But notice a couple different images. It's this it's a torment. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's a, a stunning image. It really takes us back to Sodom and Gomorrah and this destruction. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Some want to see here a picture of what they call annihilation, that the idea that this is a judgment that comes on people and they are just destroyed and it ends. Well, the first part of that verse, verse 10, gives you some of that, might suggest that to you. The stuff of verse 11 suggests probably a more traditional view in Christianity, which is the idea that there's literally an eternal suffering, an eternal torment for those who have rejected God. I'm not going to resolve all that this week. I want you to see it here. I want to talk about it more when it gets more into this later. But this is a picture of real and, and, and stunning kind of destruction. Its echoes, biblically, is from Isaiah 34, which describes the destruction of the Edomites. Um, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. They also had participated in, worked with the Babylonians in the Babylonian exile. They helped them defeat Israel, conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and cast Judah off. The Edomites, for their part in, in uh, helping destroy or defeat Israel, God promised, Isaiah 34, that they would be destroyed. And in fact, they were. <laughs> Uh, so much so that in archaeology, it was long considered, the Edomites were long considered a mythical people. They thought they just made them up, um, that there was nothing, of bio, uh, nothing true about them in history. And it was like in the late 19th century that they found evidence of them. Now, in modern-day Jordan, you can go to Petra and you can see the place that actually the Edomites were there originally. This is, that's where they were at, what's the, now in Petra, this stunning kind of facade that remains 
that was, uh, I guess it was uh, the last Indiana Jones, the Raiders, uh, the uh, last crusade, they had the picture of it there. But a famous, beautiful site. But that was the people that had succeeded the Edomites there in that era. But they discovered that they actually existed. But they were so wiped out for so many centuries, people thought they really were some mythical people. But they're the ones who have just be, and that destruction of the Edomites is now being applied to all peoples here. Now, that seems cruel for most of us. That seems hard to swallow. But just recognize so far in Revelation that what it's describing is this punishment that is giving, given to those who have killed the saints, who have worshipped the beast, who have rejected God's overtures calling for repentance over and over and over. It is a vindication here that is being promised, that was promised to the saints in chapter 6, verse 11. And it actually is an answer to the prayers of the saints in chapter 6. How long, O Lord, when will you deliver us? When will you call our enemies to justice? There is a destruction that is coming. So what do you do with all of that? Well, a couple things I would suggest. First, I just want to reiterate that idea that worship is a war cry. That in our worship, we are declaring victory even in the darkness. That we are determined to endure even in hard times. We get an answer. What do we do with this? Verse 12 tells us. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in in, in Jesus. We are a people who are called to weather the storm, to persevere in the midst of darkness. A lot of my struggle these days, really a lot of my wrestling for us as a church, it's really wrestling with what they call the seen versus the unseen problem. The seen problem that we're all dealing with right now is this pandemic. We all know about it. We know what's going on. We have all these protocols. The unseen stuff is the stuff that I'm more worried about because the unseen stuff is for all the folks who aren't here week in, week out. We don't interact. We're not seeing each other. A lot of folks I'm, I'm worried or are concerned are suffering in silence, that you're struggling with depression or you're struggling with just a sense of listening to your own voices instead of listening to the voice of God, that, that we're not here embodied with one another, holding each other accountable. My concern is about those unseen problems. I mean, you see this globally. Domestic violence is on the rise. Divorce is on the rise. People are dealing with alcoholism. The addiction, you know, calls for addiction, calls for help. Suicide hotlines are flying. They're having a hard time keeping up with the demands. We're struggling because of a lot of these unseen problems as we tackle one problem but have a whole lot of other things going on. There's this call here in Revelation 14 for us to be a people who are weathering the darkness, who can weather the darkness because God is bigger than the darkness, because God has defeated the darkness. We need to remember that. We need to remember that there is nothing that we are weathering right now, that we are going through, that God hasn't already accounted for and planned for. We need to remember that we have a big God who calls us to endure when we experience our little shadows, as much as Revelation 12 and 13 has been talking to us about extreme darkness. And so worship as a kind of war cry to roll back the darkness. Second, the gospel has the whole of creation in view, that we aren't simply called as Christians to escape from this world, but called into service, that we serve this world, bearing His true mark. We go into the world. We seek justice. We seek reconciliation. And we do so, one, because we understand that justice and reconciliation comes from God, 
And I think like in our class this morning, a lot of the challenge we have is to hear God's vision of justice, God's vision of reconciliation, rather than that which is imposed by the world. To hear something better, because the good news is that God is back on his throne. God is ruling over this creation, and we can trust him. Third, our call is faithfulness, even unto death. Verse 13 ends in this kind of odd note. Heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Theologically, you've got a really interesting moment that actually it's the Lord speaks, God the Father speaks, and the Spirit of God answers him. One of those things that we struggle with in Trinitarian theology is to understand that the Spirit of God isn't some ethereal, ghost-like object, but a person. And here you have one of those moments in Scripture where that's crystal clear. The Spirit of God is speaking back to the Father. There's a dialogue, and it's as if Father and Spirit together are giving as two witnesses to testify to the truth that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Well, why from now on? Why weren't they blessed when they died in the Lord before? Well, I think they probably were, but I think what's happening here is that it is a reminder that death has been defeated in Jesus Christ. It's not that death itself is a blessing, but that in Christ, the triumph of Christ is such that he can turn death into a blessing. Our deeds matter in eternity. What we do now matters. And that's the last thing he says. They may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. We are called to be a people whose actions matter because they resonate in an eternity that has been created for us in the triumph of Jesus Christ. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Ezekiel is surrounded in a point where he feels defeated. The armies, the enemies are surrounding him. He's like, there is no hope. And God gives them a stunning vision. Just open your eyes and see. And he sees that he is in fact surrounded by a holy army. If he could only have the eyes to see, he would know God has already got this. God has secured the victory. As we navigate the challenges in our day, both the seen and the unseen, we have to remember that we can look to the sunrise and know that there is hope. Or perhaps as Christians, we look to the sun's rise and know that there is hope. Christ is on his throne, God has accomplished his victory. And we can be a people proclaiming his goodness in this world. Let's pray. God, help us in the midst of this season to find our hope in you, to know that you are, that you have this world under your in control, that we can trust and worship you, and that we can proclaim the good news that you are on your throne in this world. In Christ's name, amen.